1: The Michael Richo Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome
2: to The Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11am on the issues and the stories of the moment. If you want to get in touch, give us a call on 41 or you can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658. Well, as you probably heard in the news, welfare recipients will get a €200 lump sum payment as part of the cost of living package that's going to Cabinet this morning. This is in response to calls, certainly from opposition parties, that the cost of living measures that were introduced in the budget won't go far enough as the current cost of living crisis continues to make life very difficult for a lot of families who are financially stretched. To get an insight as to what we can expect today, I'm joined on the line right now by Adam Higgins, who is the political correspondent of the Irish Sun newspaper. So Adam, in terms of this package that's going to be announced today, what are you hearing?
3: So one of the big parts of the package that we expect to be announced today, and now all this has to be signed off by Cabinet still, but the big uh, section that's kind of been briefed yesterday was a 400 million euro social welfare package. And as you mentioned, that will include a 200 euro lump sum for pensioners, carers, people with disabilities, people on the widow's allowance and, and people on the lone parent's allowance. Now, along with that, that's the targeted measures that they want to help those who are most vulnerable, but along with that will be a universal payment of a, a €100 euro extra child benefit payment. Now, that will go to all families, so it'll be €100 euro per child, and it'll go on top of the €140 euro that you always get. And then there'll be another payment, then a €100 euro extra payment on top of that back to school clothing and footwear allowance. So that's kind of the, the main parts of the social welfare package. Another little bit that uh, Minister Heather Humphreys was pushing for, but we're not sure if we'll, if we'll see it at uh, this time or not, is a really big extension and expansion to that school meals programme into primary schools across the country.
2: Well, now, the hospitality sector has been crying and whinging and certainly uh, pushed the government to get the VAT rate down from 13.5% to 9%. But there's anger over the fact that when the VAT rate went down to 9%, uh, the prices in hotels and pubs did not go down accordingly. Uh, They've been doing a lot of lobbying in recent months. Uh, Is there signs that uh, the government is going to look after them in this package?
3: Yeah, it sounds like that uh, that lobby really has uh, been effective because the, what we're hearing is that that 9% VAT rate for the hospitality sector will stay in place for another six months. So that'll move back up to that 13.5%. In September, and that is a contentious issue because, as you mentioned last year, the governments were furious with the hotel sector in particular for what they called price gouging, and they said that prices were far too high in hotels despite the accommodation shortage, and they felt that people were were being unfairly treated by the hotels. So they, it really felt like, and it looked like, all the sounds from Leinster House was that the hospitality sector were going to lose that battle, and they were going to uh, lose that nine percent uh, rate in next month when it was due to to lapse, but it seems like heavy pressing from the likes of the Hotels Federation the Restaurants Association and the Publicans has really worked and they're going to get another six months of that so they'll have a summer now to earn a little bit more on that 9% and then in September before the budget it will revert back to the 13.5%
2: Now as it is Adam the cost of petrol, diesel and home heating oil is ridiculously expensive but uh, the indications this morning are that in fact uh, there's some bad news for motorists. What do you know?
3: For motorists in particular, yes. Yeah. So what the Taoiseach the had promised on this was that there would be no cliff edge. And I suppose he it looks like he has come true on that because the prices won't change at the pumps immediately in March. It looks like they're going to defer that until June and then there will be a staggered reintroduction of that, price, of that uh, higher tax. So what will happen is... For example in june it'll go up by, the price of the pumps will go up by six cents per liter and then in september it 'll go up to seven cent and then in october eight cents and that all, all, overall that'll be the twenty one cent before the next budget so in october we 'll have them back to where they were with that full price in Now, when it comes to the home energy bills. That decision has been deferred until after the summer so we'll keep that lower rate on the the home energy bills but we'll see how that I'd imagine that's something they'll want to unwind before the next budget as well so we'll have to see whether they're going to do a staggered approach to that as well or whether it's just been completely deferred in the same way as the hospitality sector has.
2: Well on that very point of home energy bills uh, there's been calls uh, particularly from the Social Democrats for the introduction of a windfall tax on energy companies because Some people believe that the energy companies are making uh, what appear to be extraordinary profits at a time when a lot of families are stretched to pay their bills. Do we have any indication that uh, the government will announce today that it intends to put the squeeze on energy companies who are raking in the profits?
3: This is something that the government has actually already introduced. And I remember... um, not too long ago, I interviewed uh, Minister Eamon Ryan and asked him about this, and he said that in the first half of this year, we'll start to see that money coming back from the energy company. So the government have put this windfall tax, and it's, it's kind of a complicated tax that works two ways, but they have put... An, the, that windfall tax in place, but what they're waiting for now is those big energy companies to file their tax returns, to file their finances so that the Department of Finance can go in and I suppose figure out how much these uh, companies owe the state. Now the Taoiseach spoke about this just a couple of weeks ago on the doll and he said that he expects to bring in hundreds of millions of euro from this tax raise, new, uh, raising measure. Now the thing is they won't know how much they're going to make on that tax before they announce this package today. So while Minister Eamon Ryan has always said, and he told the Irish Sun not too long ago, that he wants all of the money from that windfall tax to be ring-fenced and used for supports to help families through this uh, high energy price crisis, we won't know how much that's going to be. So the measures that were getting announced today, you know, I think there may be, beforehand we thought they'd be a lot bigger and better than, than they might be. Some people might be surprised about how slimmed down version of the of a sports package this is. Bar the targeted sports measures which seem to be seem to be quite generous, but a slimmed down version of what we were expecting. For example, it doesn't look like we're going to get another home energy credit, which had been uh, kind of reported and briefed about before. So I think That windfall tax is probably directly as a result of that. If they had had that windfall tax earlier, maybe they could have known how far they're going to go. And I suppose that money that they raise from that windfall tax, you'd hope that they're going to use it in September to help protect families next winter.
2: Well, on that very point, uh, Catherine Martin of the Green Party, who is the Minister for Communications, and you can add on another five or six portfolios into the package there. She was making the point last week that the electricity credit of €200 should be extended, but should be brought in uh, next autumn. Uh, Is there any indication that the government is taking that call on board?
3: I think this is the tricky one that we're going to see from today's announcement. So a couple of weeks ago, there was reports around and speculation that, yes, there's going to be another €200 energy credit for households in this spring package. And in the past couple of days, and certainly last week in their doll exchanges, the the government leaders were kind of moving away from that and kind of tempering expectations, I suppose, about what people should expect from today's announcement and I think amongst that the idea that a 200 euro energy credit uh, would, would, a fourth one, would be in there seems to have dropped away. I mean I was speaking to a government source last night about this and I I brought away, I was like, well are we going to see this fourth energy credit? And they said, well we still have to get another one from our forest tree in March so that kind of goes to, to help families there. So it sounds like they're moving Away from that fourth one. Now there has been I've read the same reports as yourself that they want one to be deferred into the into the autumn. But I think that's a kind of a tricky question and a tricky thing to put the households because. They're saying that this is to, you know, we won't be using as much heating, say, in our houses over the summer. But that energy credit never really helped you pay the gas. It was an electricity bill. And surely you'd use a similar amount, maybe a little bit less in the summer because you mightn't be in the house as much. But you'd use a similar amount of electricity during the summer as you would in the other months. So I kind of... I don't know whether their messaging there would be as clear because that energy credit, that electricity credit, which is really what it is, was really helpful for households. I know a lot of households who say during the winter they got hit with a massive gas bill, but they were like, well, the the, the energy bill, the electricity bill was brought down by that €200 credit, so that helps. And I know we've seen Pinergy yesterday bring down their prices by 7%. That doesn't kick in until March. We, it's unlikely if we see any of the other uh, energy countries companies following suit, it'll be unlikely that that won't kick in until the end of March or April or June maybe. So people will still be paying those high electricity prices in March and April when that fourth credit would have been applicable. So it's going to be an interesting one to see how they kind of answer those questions today at a press conference which we're expecting this afternoon.
2: Well, now, one of the issues that uh, the likes of people before profit have been making a lot of noise about is the uh, moratorium on uh, evictions in rental properties. This is going to effectively come to an end uh, towards the end of March. And uh, there are calls for the government to extend the moratorium because uh, there are issues in relation to uh, the legality of the process and the fact that some property owners... Owners uh, want to make changes to their properties. They need to get tenants out to get others in. And in some cases, they want to sell up and move on. Uh, Is there any expectation that there may be an announcement on this today?
3: I'm I'm positive we'll get more details on that today. But which way that announcement is going to go is still up in the air, I think. That goes to cabinet today, which the housing minister will be at. I'm told the housing minister wasn't involved in last night's talk. So I'd imagine he'll want to have his say at that meeting today. But that is going to be a very tricky one for the government because you've heard the people before profits argument. The government will say that they can't keep this in place indefinitely. So without passing, I'd imagine, new legislation. So this will be very interesting. And people before profit have done, uh, uh, I suppose, put a bit of pressure on them because they have drawn up the bill. They've drawn up the legislation and they've said, here you go, if you want to do it, there it is, all you have to do is, you know, follow that. And so it'll be interesting to see how that works because they did promise that there'd be no cliff edge to these supports and that is a support and whether they just drop that, that's, I mean, if they, clearly if they just drop that at the end of the month, that will be a cliff edge. So it'll be very interesting to see how they handle that one today.
2: Well, Adam, as you said earlier on, welfare recipients will get a €200 lump sum payment. Then there's also going to be a €100 once-off extra payment for child benefit. A lot of these seem to be one-off payments. And in theory, that would get a struggling family over the line for one week. But a week later, we're back where we already are. Are these measures going to be enough uh, to satisfy the opposition?
3: no definitely not i don't think so what you're going to what's happening the way this is going to play out today is that the the cabinet will meet today they'll agree these measures then we'll have a press conference, and then the Taoiseach will go into leaders' questions. And I think what you're going to see there is a very heated exchange between the opposition and the government, with the opposition accusing the government of not going far enough with this. We've seen that we brought in uh, record-breaking tax uh, corporate tax returns in the last few months of the year, so we have that money there. We know that, as we've spoken about already, the, the energy windfall uh, tax is going to come in. We have more money there, and I think the opposition are going to say, you have that money, why aren't you spending it? Why you're doing, enough now while inflation is at the highest, while energy prices are at the highest, before they start falling this is when families and, and people need the support. And I think that's what you're going to see uh, the opposition go really hard on that today.
2: Just changing track for a minute, Adam. Um, We had a situation last Friday where the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, visited the North. There was an expectation that we were on the verge of an announcement in relation to sorting out this controversy over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And then we had the Boris Johnson intervention over the weekend and then we had uh, the Thornis de Martin saying yesterday people of the North have had enough of their future being played with. Sammy Wilson making the point yesterday on Sky News that uh, no deal on the Northern Ireland protocol can take place unless the DUP have a say. Is there a feeling uh, that after the expectations of last week, that this week uh, we're actually no further on?
3: I think um, maybe that might be a bit of an overstatement to say we're no further on, because after all those meetings, that would have been important engagement, especially that meeting with the DUP. The... the Prime Minister flew to, to Belfast and he actually met with all the parties and all of those parties were in, in the north had about 15 minutes with him. But the DUP's meeting went on for almost an hour and a half. So that was obviously really detailed exchanges and it's clear that he was trying to use the, uh, that meeting to win them over. So I think you're going to see movements on this today because uh, it's the cabinet in the UK are due to meet and Rishi Sunak would be trying to win over his ministers and also... The key group here is uh, the DUP, but the second key group will be those Eurosceptic backbenchers in the Conservative Party. And they really can put a lot of pressure on the Prime Minister when it comes to this. So I think if he can win those over today at this meeting, that will be a big win. And then it's just the DUP that he needs to win over. And I think when you listen to the detail of what the DUP have been saying on this for the past while, their position has Kind of, I'm not going to say softened, but they seem to be being won over by this deal. It seems to be a lot of the stuff that they want, the seven checks they've talked about, seems to be they're ticking off some of those. The last key issue here is that European Court of Justice, and where, whether it will have jurisdiction in Northern Ireland or not, or how they're going to solve that disputes mechanism. So that's going to be the one to watch. But I think today is a big day for Rishi Sunak and see, to see if he can win over his, uh, his party members.
2: There you go, that's uh, Adam Higgins there, political correspondent with the Irish Sun newspaper speaking to me earlier this morning. If you want to get in touch, by the way, you can call us on 041 98 or you can text us on WhatsApp on 086 658 and, of course, uh, we'll have updates on those uh, expected cost of living measures on LMFM News uh, throughout the day. More to come. We'll take a break.
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
2: FM. Now, People Before Profit launched the eviction ban bill yesterday calling for the ban on rental property evictions to be extended beyond its current deadline of March 31st and they're asking the government to strengthen the legislation as a result of the threats posed by the cost of living crisis and housing emergency and they were joined in their call by leading homeless campaigners like Peter McFerry and indeed uh, the Simon Communities. It should be added of course that Housing Minister Darrell O'Brien says the government has not yet decided whether or not they will extend the eviction ban and he says the measure was always a temporary one and the issue is legally complex. Richard Boyd Barrett of People Before Profit joins me on the line right now. Uh, Richard, you, you've been making a lot of noise about this in the doll in recent months. Come the end of March, if this eviction ban uh, is lifted, uh, what are the implications uh, for those who, if you like, have nowhere else to go?
4: Well, the government themselves said uh, when they were under pressure forced to introduce the moratorium at the end of last year on notices to quiz that between two and three thousand people might have been evicted over the winter months. So all of those uh, potential evictions can now proceed and many, many thousands more are being caught up daily in, uh, certainly over over a period of months, with the the housing crisis, particularly because of the unaffordability of rents. When people are going looking for rental accommodation or have to move for whatever reason, they simply cannot find anything out there that is affordable. I mean, average rents nationally are now €1,700 a month. In the south of Dublin, where I'm based, they are about €2,500, which is completely unaffordable for the vast majority of people. So there's literally no options for people. And in that circumstance, to allow more people who've done nothing wrong, and I want to stress our eviction ban is about. People where it's a no fault eviction, where the person has done nothing wrong, they've always paid the rent, they haven't engaged in any poor behaviour or anything. It is absolutely crazy uh, and cruel to uh, allow people to be pushed into homelessness. And indeed, we haven't even got the, the homeless accommodation for many people. Uh, and it's just imposing terrible hardship on thousands of children. There are nearly 3,000 children at the moment in emergency accommodation. It, it's absolutely madness to allow more people to become homeless. And the major reason people end up homeless is because they are evicted through no fault of their own from private rented accommodation. So we think the government has to impose a ban until they start to actually deliver affordable and public housing that would provide people with alternatives
2: okay well you're introducing um, I think it's a private members motion in the doll next week to basically extend the ban on evictions what will your private members bill contain that is not currently in existing law
4: well <coughs> first of all the moratorium that the government introduced did not cover everybody who could potentially be evicted in a no false situation So anybody who had received uh, a notice to quit and had passed their eviction date before the introduction of the moratorium uh, were not covered. So for example, last Friday I was in a district court where a family who had done nothing wrong were being evicted on grounds of sale from the house they had lived in for their entire lives, for 50 years, where their kids had been born and brought up and they were being evicted even though they'd done nothing wrong. Uh, So many people were not protected by the moratorium. So we want to ensure that anybody who has done nothing wrong, who's always paid their rent, uh, will not be evicted, at least while there is an emergency, while there are no alternatives available to them. And also, I mean, while our bill doesn't cover this, we believe that there has to be a more general strengthening of tenants' rights. In most countries in Europe, if a landlord is selling, they have to sell with the tenant in the property. Uh, so that there's security of tenure for people who are renting. Uh, but here in Ireland, if a, a, a landlord is selling, uh, that is a, a, a basis for evicting people. And, of course, that is a major contributing factor now to people being homeless. So we want to stop that flow into homelessness by banning those no-fault evictions as long as the housing emergency stays with us. So the, the bill would allow for the for the eviction ban to stay for a year, but then could be renewed by the Minister as long as the housing emergency persists.
2: Okay, I think uh, the vast majority of people listening to this would uh, very much sympathise with the point you're making. But th- the other side of the coin is that the vast majority of landlords are what are called sometimes accidental landlords. They're the ordinary Johnnies and Marys who have a house and then buy a second house and the thinking is that the tenant will pay the mortgage. uh, Over a period of time the mortgage will be paid off and the person will own the property so they'll have uh, an asset that is uh, increasing in value and plus they'll have a rental income. That's the theory of the whole thing. But isn't the the, the real problem uh, in this country that the taxation on land landlords is so severe that is why so many people are getting out of the sector and if something was done to make it more attractive for landlords to stay in the market uh, that this mightn't be the issue that it is.
4: Well in fact I think the reason most landlords are selling up now is because property prices are so high Uh, and if a survey was done recently where landlords were asked that very question and most of them said it it didn't really make a whole lot of difference what the the legislation was around uh, landlord and tenant relations but that they were getting out of the market anyway. And I think that is largely because property prices are so high and people are cashing in uh, on their investment, on the assets uh, as you described it. So in a way, the decision of landlords to leave is another symptom of a housing crisis where property prices have gone completely out of control. Uh, Because, of course, it's not just rents that have gone up, property prices have gone absolutely out of control, primarily because of the failure of the government to deliver, on large scale, public and affordable housing. And, of course, that is the the real solution to the housing crisis. An eviction ban is, is only one part of the piece. What we need is the state itself to deliver on a very, very large scale public and affordable housing. But,
2: but but also, Richard, can I just come across you there? I mean, yeah. isn't the other real uh, problem in this country is that we do not have what they have, for example, in the Netherlands, Austria, Germany, and so on, uh, a system that's known as security of tenure, that when you uh, rent out a property, you have a contract that basically says you can stay there for the rest of your life as long as you pay the rent uh, and as long as you meet the, uh, if you like, the, the agreement drawn up with the landlord and that we don't seem to have that here because there isn't a culture of it here.
4: No, absolutely. And that that was the point I was making earlier on, Ken, and to to make it absolutely clear, yes, that is the normal system in the rest of Europe. And we are an outlier uh, in that if a landlord is selling or sometimes uh, doing refurbishment, there is a right to evict. Now, if landlords are, you know, involved in the private rented sector and see it as an investment, fair enough. But that does not mean the tenant should have no security and can be evicted at a whim when they've done absolutely nothing wrong. So we absolutely need to move to what is the norm in the private rental sector uh, in the rest of Europe, where if you're selling, you have to sell with the tenant in place. Uh, And that doesn't prevent the landlord from gathering the rent or affect the value of the property. It is just the norm because tenants have the right, and families and individuals who are in the private rental sector have the right to expect uh, security. Uh, And to repeat, when you look at the absolutely shocking level of homelessness at the moment, a vast, vast majority of those people who are homeless uh, are ordinary working people who've done nothing wrong, have sure. paid their taxes and paid their rent, but they end up homeless through no fault of their own. And that has to be
2: stopped. Okay, let me put this scenario to you that if the ban on evictions is lifted at the end of March. And then we have another scenario coming down the line that, uh, for example, people in asylum who are in hotels and guest houses are asked to, if you like, to vacate because the hotels and the guest houses have tourist bookings to deal with in the summer. What sort of a crisis do you see coming down the line?
4: I I think if if this uh, eviction ban is lifted, we are going to see an avalanche of further evictions into homelessness and obviously all of that then is compounded with that wider accommodation crisis. Now I do believe the government has the power and the capacity if they, if they have the will to deal with these problems but at the moment they're not demonstrating it. I mean it's self-evident that if we have a wider accommodation crisis the last thing you want to do is let thousands more people end up having to look for emergency accommodation. And let's remember, during COVID, when we had a comprehensive eviction ban, we actually saw the numbers of people in homelessness significantly reduce. So these measures can work. And I would add to that things like far more robust measures when it comes to uh, taking over the state, buying vacant and uh, derelict property, uh, which has been done successfully in some parts of the country. And in fact, I think your own area is one of the better performers in this regard, where local authorities are buying properties where people are threatened with eviction. But this is not being done on a systematic basis across the country. Uh, I mean, it makes no sense to me for a local authority where it could buy a uh, a property and stop people being evicted. To not do that, let the person become homeless, and then the local authority has to pick up the pieces anyway in terms of trying to source
5: okay.
2: emergency
4: accommodation for just,
2: that person. Just one final question, uh, Richard, and very briefly. You're going to introduce this uh, bill in the Dáil next week and uh, going by, uh, if you like, the culture of the Dáil, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens are going to vote against it. What does that say about Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens?
4: Well, I mean... In our view, the reason we the, the, that homelessness and housing crisis has reached such uh, obscene levels uh, is because Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and sadly the Greens have tended to put the interests of vulture funds, big corporate landlords, uh, people who are making money out of the current housing crisis, they seem to put their interests before the needs of ordinary people for a secure affordable roof over their head. And if they vote against our bill, that will really give further evidence uh, of that. And I think the government are there to represent all of the people and not just uh, the interests of people who make money out of property. Uh, But, uh, you know, I hope if there's sufficient public pressure on the government uh, that we can force them to actually adopt this measure. And at the moment, they're procrastinating. uh, And I would appeal to the government and obviously to all the opposition parties to support our bill as one important measure that can stem the flow into homelessness but also of course we need to agitate for a much more a wide-ranging, radical emergency package of measures to deal with what is an absolutely dire housing and homelessness crisis that is affecting tens and tens okay. and tens of thousands of people in different ways.
2: Okay, well it's no doubt something we're going to return to as the uh, clock counts down towards March 31st. That's uh, Richard Boyd Barrett there of People Before Profit. We'll take a break.
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM
2: Don't forget you can text or WhatsApp us on 0860 one Now there were 100 incidents of drink spiking investigated by Garthi in 2022 That's a near doubling of cases compared to the previous year 12 cases were investigated in 2020 and this seems to be a problem that's getting further and further out of control I'm joined on the line now by Nolene Blackwell of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre Nolene, how bad is the situation?
5: Uh, good morning, Ken Uh, I suppose the truth is nobody really knows. While while that looks like a big increase in spiking uh, incidents being investigated by the Gardaí uh, from 12 in 2020 to over 100 in 2022. I think the reality is that the guards are only starting to isolate out that information now. Because we all, well, a lot of us know, even just from casual conversation, that spiking has been around for a long time. Um, and that it has been a worry for people for a number of years. Because, again, just to be clear what spiking is, spiking is prayer another where a drug is introduced into somebody's drink and that drug might be alcohol so where for instance somebody would ask for a shot of alcohol and, um, uh, and some sort of a mixer if somebody buys them three shots with the mixer instead of that they are actually spiking their drink adding in a sort of an, a nagging of vodka into a fruit or uh, into a punch bowl at a party or something that's spiking so too is of course adding a, a different drug but the trouble with spiking is that if it is adding um, drink or another drug to somebody's drink, it's very hard to identify it as a separate offence and very hard to prosecute. Because somebody might have been having a drink consensually, uh, but they, they hadn't meant, they hadn't intended to have that much drink or to have it in that concentration. Um, and so even if you did a blood test, you couldn't established that somebody had done something illegal that way. So we're very dependent on people knowing that look, this is my normal reaction to drink and that was an abnormal reaction because I passed out or I was incoherent or something. It's, it's something that's, that's there in the ether. The guards aren't going to be able to solve this on their own because it is so hard to detect. And even if a different drug is put in, Hospitals won't know what to test for and somebody mightn't be able to go to them in time to even see it. So, so really, while it is, of course, a criminal offence, it is actually poisoning somebody. The person who does it is a poisoner. It's going to be hard to treat just as a crime.
2: OK, you say that it's a criminal offence. Uh, what are the penalties for somebody found guilty of spiking?
5: well it won't be, it won't be just uh, that won't be it the penalties for instance for poisoning can be uh, serious jail terms as well as fining. that's one way of doing it um it if it's uh, if it is prosecuted as a uh, something that is trying to attempt to commit another crime, like stealing from somebody or assaulting them, either sexually or physically, then there will be different penalties. Like there's one offence that's up to five years in jail. Um, But it is unlikely that somebody is going to be prosecuted for that on their own. It's likely to be with other things because, again, the question of evidence. How do you prove it? Unless someone makes an admission, Um, it is likely to be part of a pattern. If it is somebody who is doing it in order to carry out another offence, then that is a really terrible thing to do. But the other thing that I think we hear about in terms of spiking is that uh, that it's, it's often done, say, at the end of a party or a get-together, an end-of-term get-together, or something like that. You hear of, of people um, being, you know, rendered unconscious uh, uh, through something uh, that was put into their drink. So the purpose of that seems to be just somebody thinks it's funny and of all the things I don't understand in life, and there's many, but of all the things I don't understand, I don't understand how anyone can think it's funny to make somebody else Uh, to poison
2: somebody else. I presume spiking is carried out in, if you like, a sly and underhand way. So, uh, assuming that is the case, isn't it very, very difficult to get cases into court on the basis of either witnesses uh, not being uh, there to to verify what the allegation is uh, and proof?
5: 100%. You're 100% right. And that's why we'll have to tackle it at a different level. There's a really good chance that somebody would not be prepared, somebody who saw it happening, somebody who saw somebody else doing it, might not be prepared to give evidence against their friend in court. But if they could instead, if every one of us, every single person, everyone who's out in the night could be really clear that if you saw somebody uh, trying to buy somebody um, a, a stronger drink than they wanted, if you saw somebody pour another drink into a drink in a round of drinks, if you saw any of that, that that we could call that out. You know, that's the way I think it will be dealt with rather than, um, I'm sure there will be the odd criminal uh, charge as well. But for the most part, I think this will have to be at the society level that none of us tolerates this. None of us accepts it. And that if we see anybody who is at risk, of this, that we make sure that they are told. I also think that it may very well be that if someone is doing it maliciously, it may be things like you know, a pub licensees, people who run pubs and bars, clubs. They Just may be sure. able to spot a pattern if a particular group of people say comes into a club or okay. something that suddenly there's an increase.
2: Just one final question, Nolene. Um, you know, w- w- we live in a society where. Uh, Young men and young women go out to bars, they go to discos, they go to concerts, they even go to football matches. You know, we have a very vibrant social scene in this country. It's what we're famous for. What advice would you give for young girls, particularly teenagers who are heading out to discos and bars at the weekend to try and ensure that they don't fall into the trap of spiking?
5: Yes, of, of being spiked. Uh, I suppose they could do it themselves as well. You do occasionally hear of people doing it on their their uh, friends of their own sex that they're not in any relationship with. But I think what's wearing about this is that you're asking the person who's likely to be harmed to take uh, the care and you have to do that. People have to look out for each other. Uh, people have to watch out for each other. If someone seems to be more drunk than you expected, they would be. If they seem to be, incoherent to make sure that they're minded at the end of a night and not uh, uh, you know not allowed away uh, uh, and vulnerable uh, so so there's that kind of thing you know you do hear there are also uh, uh, particularly young girls make all sorts of arrangements uh, to cover their drinks to to try and make sure but the real what I'd really say to people in that vibrant scene. It is, it is, there's a really good chance someone else knows that someone is about to do this spiking. Okay. Ask them not to and, and call them out if they do.
2: All right. Something tells me it's an item we're going to be returning to again and again and again. That's uh, Nolene Blackwell there, the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. More to come. We'll take a break.
0: Ken Murray on LMFM. Michael Reed on,
2: on LMFM. Indeed, you can text us on WhatsApp at zero eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Now, joining me in studio live is Chris McManus. He's the Sinn Fein MEP for this constituency, which is the Midlands Northwest. And indeed, it's a vast constituency. I've lost count of how many counties it covers, but I'm told it's one of the biggest landmass constituencies in all of Europe. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chris. Uh, you're in the Louth area today. I believe you're talking to the IFA later on. What will you be discussing?
1: Well, the first thing I want to say is good morning to yourself, Ken, and good morning to your listeners, and I hope they haven't uh, overfed on pancakes as of yet. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's great, actually, to get out around the constituency, and as you said yourself, it's 13 counties in size, and it is probably one of the largest constituencies in the European Union, and unfortunately... We only get back here once every four or five weeks to be able to spend some time. And with the the pandemic, uh, we missed out in two years. My first two years as an MEP was effectively either sequestered in, a, in an office in Sligo or out in Brussels as it was most times. So it was one thing I was really looking forward to, being able to get out on the ground, talk to people. I was a councillor for 20 odd years and it was the one part of the job that I enjoyed and it was the one part of being an MEP that I was really looking forward to. So yeah we're we're, we're in Loud today. We were in Cavan and Monaghan yesterday. We'll be uh, spending some time here in in, in Loud and uh, we've a meeting in, just uh, in Dundalk at, uh, at the top of this hour uh, with Loud IFA and talking of uh, you know uh, matters that are very important to them uh, and to the farming community in this region.
2: Uh, one of the issues that's been coming up a lot lately uh, not only in Louth particularly up around the Cooley area but uh, down in Tipperary as well is the scourge of dogs attacking sheep and so on uh, lots of farmers have invested in sheep and uh, they see their investment you know, gone overnight is there anything the European Parliament can do in terms of laws or regulations uh, to deal with the whole issue of dangerous dogs? Uh,
1: in terms of whether what the European Parliament can do, it would be very, very limited. Uh, it would have to be something that would have to be dealt with uh, at a member state level, um, because by and large, as I said, laws that are made out in Europe are one size fits all. They're determined and designed to fit 27 member states. Uh, I do and I'm aware of the issue of uh, uh, dogs, uncontrolled dogs, uh, in, you know, having an impact and, and destroying flocks of sheep. It's, obviously I know it's, it's, it's an issue, and I talked to my colleague Anton Waters about this uh, from up the Cooley area uh, recently about it uh, and I know but it's an issue that's been ongoing it's been an issue that's been ongoing since people have been uh, herding sheep uh, I do know the IFA have obviously they they have a campaign that's been going on nearly t- 12 months and I think the first most important thing to always remember is that dog owners uh, need to accept responsibilities of dog ownership and in fairness most do uh, this is only a, a very small, t- tiny minority that allow their dogs to roam uncontrolled. Uh, and the safety of farm animals must be paramount in, in all of this. So as I said, I do know it's one of the issues that Loud IFA will probably be, be discussing uh, within you know an hour or so's time. Um, it is a critical time of year with lambing. Uh, and as I said, what Loud IFA will be raising with me. I'll be raising with our uh, agriculture spokesperson, Matt Carty, uh, I'm of the understanding that at a rock this level, this is going to be the issue of dog control is Uh, other consideration and is going to be reviewed in regards to uh, what can be done to uh, ensure that farmers' livelihoods are being protected.
2: One of the things that the EU Commission, which is separate to where you are, you're in the European Parliament, uh, are are pushing for uh, is this whole area of if you like, uh, reduction, reducting, reducing, rather, uh, a, a drive to reduce our carbon output. And this has implications for farming because if we're to reduce carbon, reduce methane output, uh, we have to reduce the national herd. If you reduce the national herd, you reduce beef production, you reduce uh, milk production families involved in farming will have to get out and this could affect our GNP and our GDP. So how does the uh, the European, I suppose, bureaucracy square the circle here in terms of the effect it could have on farm incomes?
1: Yeah, w- we have to recognise that as uh, an awful lot of decisions that are being determined at EU level
6: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Have immediate impacts on us at a local level here in Ireland. And, and as I go around and I engage with many people within the farming and the rural communities, there's a sense of despondency. Um, I know recent surveys have indicated that you know one up to one third of farmers in different sectors uh, either the suckler sector and the, the sheep sector are on about they don't maybe consider that they'll be uh, engaged in that within uh, you know possibly within five years time and there's also that issue of and I was talking to a farmer in Cavan about it yesterday of lack of generational change you know the you know, what are you working for why, why is the need to continue when You know, your children are either not showing any interest in doing it or in fairness, some of them wouldn't even advise their kids to get involved in farming at this stage. Uh, And that's very much regrettable when we hear that. Uh, There's also all those issues of the input costs around feedstuff, around fertilisers, around motor fuel. Uh, Fertiliser costs are still going upwards, even though the, the price of production through natural gas is going down. I actually raised it in the European Parliament last week. You know, so as I said, I go back to that thing of of unfortunately what we have in Europe is that there are 700 plus MEPs, only 13 from Ireland, uh, while we try and shout as loud as we can. You have this one-size-fits-all that's determined by four or five countries, the Germanys, the Frances, Italy, you know, Italy Spain, yeah, to a yeah. extent por- Poland as well, who are maybe not as focused on uh, the agricultural and rural needs as what we would be in Ireland. Uh, and as I said, by nature, the EU being the beast that it is, is what It is one law, and then it's it's rolled out across all twenty. It's a sort of a one understand. law
2: fits all basically. It,
1: basically, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. And as I said, you know, when you look at it, that there are more MEPs from Bavaria in southern Germany than there are in Ireland. Uh, and as I said, we do try and punch above our weight. I think sometimes we 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 get it right, uh, but unfortunately, as I said, is is at times we're treated uh, as if we're on the periphery of sure. Europe.
2: Uh, I want to move on to to Brexit because uh, with the whole debate over the Northern Ireland protocol, your party Sinn Féin, I suppose you could say they're waiting in the wings to take the office of First Minister in the north. The the DUP appears to be putting every roadblock possible in the way to prevent this from happening. Um, How frustrating is it for the party?
1: It's not only frustrating for Sinn Féin, it's frustrating for the majority of people in the north of Ireland who want an an executive functioning and uh, up and running, you know, to meet those day-to-day needs that are there around cost of living crisis, around addressing issues on health and those multitude of things that that people just need to have dealt with uh, just to get by and live. And uh, we've seen, you know, that there was Dahi's Law. Uh, that should have been passed and should have been enacted uh, months and months ago, and wasn't, uh, and, and only got so. Dolly's
2: law, by the way, is about uh, the opt-out on organ provision.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and we've seen it, and through it went through a myriad of a route to eventually get that it was Westminster that, uh, as an amendment on on, on top of, of of another piece of legislation, they're working on that put it through. But it's 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 exceptionally uh, difficult. Um, to, you know, move on and to try and have a functioning executive. And when I'm going around and talking to people and they you know, there's this thing of the DUP seven tests. And in fact, I think that probably Sammy Wilson brought another new brought one. An, an, in an eighth one yesterday. An eighth one in yesterday morning yeah. when he's been interviewed on Sky News. But you talk to people and, and there's that sense, just for more than people on the street, that there's that sense that it's... The whole uh, where they're at and where their mind mind space is at in regards to the protocol is as much about not being able to, two things, not being able to accept the results last May uh, and that Michelle O'Neill is the First Minister-designate, that they can't reconcile that there will be a... First Minister from a Nationalist or Republican community. But plus,
2: plus the Irish Language Act was passed, they put up extraordinary resistance to that and the census showed that the Catholics are now the majority in the North, albeit they're not a voting well, majority as well,
1: yet. Well, I, 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 I would look at electoral results and we have to acknowledge that in the last six or seven elections unionism is now a political minority. Substantial minority, but a minority nonetheless. And the mindset doesn't seem to have been able to accept that. So If we actually, though, look at it in a wider sense, we have to remember always where the DUP are coming from. They're coming from a place of quite open hostility in the past to the Good Friday Agreement. That inability to accept that the north... Change is happening. Well, that the north of Ireland is now in a different constitutional space than uh, what it has been in the past with in, in regards to Britain. That the north of Ireland is now in that constitutional space where there is the potential of constitutional change through a referendum on Irish unity. They cannot seem to accept that. So this attack on the protocol is basically, uh, by and large, uh, a, a proxy attack on the Good Friday Agreement. Um, the protocol... Uh, was put in place to try and make Brexit work. And again, it goes back to the majority of people in the North did not vote for Brexit, uh, but it's there and the protocol is the mechanism to try and deal with it. Uh,
2: In the European Parliament, which sits in Brussels and uh, bizarrely sits in Strasbourg once a month, that's uh, another day's debate. But do the MEPs from across Europe, whether they're from Portugal or Croatia or Belgium, do they understand the nuances of the north of Ireland and what the DUP is up to and the difficulties that the British government faces in dealing with the DUP?
1: The one thing I have been really positively surprised about since I went out to Brussels in, in 2020 is the that sense of right across the EU institutions and predominantly in the Parliament where I work, is that sense of solidarity with Ireland? That's that that importance of looking of protecting the Good Friday Agreement, and it's ironic that many many MEPs who maybe five six years ago had very little understanding of Irish history, very little understanding. They knew there was a peace process twenty five years ago. They knew that there was a settlement of sorts, but knew very little else. Since the Brexit vote in twenty sixteen, they have themselves been forced to go on a journey of getting to understand the nuances of the Good Friday Agreement, the importance of protecting the Good Friday Agreement have been, to some sense, those who may have in the past have a latent sympathy with Britain, have seen what has gone on uh, within the Tory government, that basically that the Tory government are willing to play fast and loose with not only our peace process, but uh, but but you know do you know basically uh, the potential of, of setting aside so much hard work that got to, got us to that point so they've had to learn all of that and, and I'm going to be honest with you in many side discussions you would have with them in private just come ma- in here yeah yeah ma- many many of them would would say well surely you know they would see Irish unity as probably, the, the you know, the sensible uh, conclusion to all this. And, you know, President Macron said it himself, is that Irish unity would sort out uh, these issues, but it wasn't for him to comment on it after literally commenting on it. So, in fairness, the European Parliament has uh, stood foursquare uh, with Ireland mm. uh, all along this journey. Uh, and, uh, as I said, uh, it, you know, they have given the Commission and uh, Commissioner Shefkevich as much space as possible to uh, make sure that uh, we try and get to that place slowly but surely uh, of uh, a, an agreement on the protocol.
2: Okay, you're from Sligo. You're an MEP for this constituency. So you as much represent Sligo as you do uh, Dundalk, uh, Drogheda or, you know... Uh, Kilbegan in Westmeath, or whatever. Um, in terms of trying to connect with constituents as an MEP, how difficult is it?
1: Exceptionally difficult, and it doesn't matter whether it's Boncran and Donegal, or down as far as Kinvar and the Clare Galway border, or over to you know South Kildare, or up here into uh, in, into Drogheda and Dundalk. Uh, it's very hard to disconnect because an awful lot of the work that we do. Firstly, it's fairly uh, um uh, you know it's it's not like we 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 kind of are involved ourselves in every piece of legislation you get very uh, kind of focused on certain pieces of policy uh, and that's because primarily the work is done at committee level by and large legislation which is voted on in Brussels and Strasbourg uh, is uh, you know, uh, it's reached its final stage and 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 is a fair, fairly much a done deal at that stage. So it's at committee level, the work is done, which means whatever committees you're on is primarily your work. Is but going back to that sense of disconnect, I I, I totally get it. Uh, we could be working on things, and at the minute, I'm working on committee level on the digital euro and cryptocurrencies, and by the time we get that through the the whole process, and we have to everything has to be translated into. 27, 20-odd languages. And by the time that actually gets through its legislative process in Brussels and Strasbourg, gets to the member state in question, here in our case Dublin, and then the Oireachtas gets their hands on it and then they have to configure it to make it applicable in Irish law. It could be, you know, a year or two after we first... And the world has moved on. on. And the world has totally moved on. Like We were working on stuff on crypto I'm not going to bore you on it. cryptocurrencies 12 months ago and it's all gone by the wayside now Okay
2: just one final question Chris as I said you're meeting uh, Loud IFA today where are you meeting what time and if there are members of the IFA in the Loud area uh, and they have one or two access to grind with the political establishment where can they uh, hook well, up with you?
1: Uh, it's it's from what I understand is is it's a private meeting we're having it in the Sinn Féin constituency office uh, in Dundalk uh, in Rory & Merkle's office office. Um, We're meeting at 11 o'clock per se um, where we'll be talking hopefully of issues of of mutual concern.
2: Okay, that's uh, Chris McManus who is the Sinn Féin MEP for this constituency which is uh, Midlands North West. He was in the area we thought we'd invite him in uh, for a chat and uh, no doubt Chris will be talking to you again as the European elections draw close. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
0: Michael Reed
2: on LMFM. You don't need me to tell you that the cost of motoring seems to be getting more and more expensive as time moves on. Uh, Some measures were introduced in the budget to reduce the cost of petrol and diesel and home heating oil. There are expectations of changes in costs which will be published today. Paddy Common of AA Roadwatch joins me on the line right now. Paddy, I believe you have some details on some of the changes that are coming down the line.
7: Yeah good morning Ken. Yeah we we have seen uh, some clarity on what's expected to be announced later today in terms of a reintroduction of the duties uh, back onto petrol and diesel and we had seen a concession on those for over the past year as a result of, of the rising costs and um due to the to the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. So what what's likely to happen is that petrol will increase by 6 cents per liter on the 1st of June, 7 cents on the 1st of September and 8 cents on the 31st of October. Um, And diesel will increase by $0.02 on the 1st of March, $0.05 on the 1st of June, and $0.05 on the 1st of September, and $0.06 on the 31st of October. Um, So that's a staggered approach. Now, we we in the AA had sort of called and flagged alongside Fuels for Ireland the fact that if they had brought that back in one go, you would have had a situation where there would have been... um, Use of petrol stations and in some cases potentially petrol stations running dry because uh, of so many people trying to fill up before these price increases. What's unusual, I suppose, we don't have any clarity yet. Ken is is, is why they've chosen the months they have. You know, there's different months for petrol and different months for diesel. Certainly, initially, no increase in in petrol until June, whereas diesel goes up uh, starting on the first of March. So uh, interesting to see if we get some clarity later on as to why they've chosen the ones they have.
2: Well, I'm just wondering Paddy, are these uh, increases being phased in to soften the shock so to speak in the hope that if the war in Ukraine ends and supply increases that the prices will come down anyway and that a 2 cent increase in, you know, March and a, you know, another increase in June and so on, it won't look so bad then.
7: Yeah, potentially kind of a good shout. I mean, it's probably for that reason, and in, in particular, the, the 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 war in Ukraine obviously created an awful lot of upheaval. We had, had we have had a reasonably mild winter. We haven't seen any major supply issues, despite uh, now what is effectively a ban on Russian fuel and fuel products uh, into the EU. So things have remained reasonably stable in terms of pricing. But uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I think it would have been a big jump. And and as you said, soften the blow of what would have been a a big increase back to where we would have nearly been this time last year when we had seen prices uh, up to and in some cases exceeding two euros per litre.
2: Uh, one thing that seems to irritate and really annoy Irish motorists is that when the prices go up, they seem to go up immediately. But when the wholesale price comes down, it seems to take forever and a day for the changes to be adjusted at the forecourt. Is that something you're hearing much about?
7: Uh, yeah, it's a bit of an age-old question at this stage. We've 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 never really got a perfectly satisfactory answer for it. The, the you know the explanations that you get are. The fact that uh, fuel retailers will order fuel often weeks in advance of when uh, the uh, you know when these prices would would change. So you might see that a retailer would order fuel two weeks prior so that the pump prices you're paying at the pump now reflects the price they ordered at the time, um, and it often takes a few weeks for the for the price to adjust. But yeah, as you rightly point out, it doesn't necessarily happen in the other direction. We often see that the price. Uh, increases fairly quickly as well so look it, it's it, it's hard to say you know we, we, we can only guess in some cases as to why this happens but uh, but certainly there, there does appear to be a bit of a trend in, in regard to that.
2: Well the uh, increases in the prices of petrol and diesel and the push for electric vehicles uh, suggests we're in the middle of a transition in terms of uh, EV car sales as they're called these days how are the figures looking?
7: Yeah, big jump. Uh, We've seen quite a dramatic increase over the last number of years. And even this year alone, they are up significantly. Supply is the only thing really holding it back at the moment. I think more people would be Moving and making the switch towards electric vehicles, if the supply was there, but it is very difficult. In some cases, you're talking about uh, a year or even more for for waiting lists on particular models. But there's no doubt we are seeing seeing a, a big increase for that. But but, look, Ken, you know that's that's for people who can afford them. We are um, we are in a situation where we're getting a, almost like a two-tier market where people who can afford to be greener are, and uh, those who can't. Uh, are being taxed even further with penalties, you know, more penalties coming on stream in the future, for for uh, people who are driving diesel and petrol cars, so unfortunately, it, it's not really that equal. We'd, we, we you know we'd like to see some way where electric vehicles will become more affordable for a wider group of people. Uh,
2: finally, Paddy, um, you know, as the drive, pardon the pun, is is heading towards uh, increased sales of electric vehicles, there doesn't seem to be the same push on the provision of chargers. Isn't this a real problem in terms of not enough chargers? Not enough locations, and some people won't buy electric vehicles because they know that if they want to drive down to Limerick, there may not be a place along the way to charge the car.
7: We are at a point where, you know, a couple of years ago we had way too many charges for the amount of vehicles that are there. Now the reverse is true. We need to really see an uptake in that. I was only reading an article this morning where there was a local councils are being very slow to take up grants that are there to put more charging points in, in towns. and In fact, Loud is one of the better ones in, in uptaking them. But w- you're right, we need to see more hubs, we need to see more f- fast charging hubs because it's one thing to, you know, most people will, will and should charge in their driveway if they have one but it's when you're crossing the country that it becomes uh, more challenging and, and I, you know, I do drive an EV and I have started to see more queues at charging stations as you cross the country and that, that can become and will become an issue.
2: Okay, it's uh, no doubt a topic we'll be returning to again. Thanks for joining us on the line this morning. That's uh, Paddy Common there from AA. We'll take a break.
0: Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Right,
2: we've had some comments in in relation to our cost of living measures discussion that we had earlier on with Adam Higgins of The Sun newspaper. Johnny was in touch. He's been listening to all the speculation about the measures cabinet are due to sign off on this morning that are aimed at tackling the financial worries we're all facing at the minute. He says he's hearing lots of talk of doubling welfare payments and one-off payments in child benefit, all of which are positive things. But what about those who are not on social welfare and who go out to work every day? Every day, What measures will be announced to help those people? And Andrew was in touch, more or less saying the same thing. He says it appears normal working families, not on social payments, won't benefit in any way with the government's measures. Still excessive costs across the board. And he says we are struggling to make ends meet. So that's something maybe the government may have to uh, keep in mind in the weeks and months ahead. Now, moving on and... If you have uh, social media on your laptop or indeed your phone, you may have seen video, very disturbing video, yesterday in relation to an attack on two members of the Garthi. In Dublin, a male guard received medical treatment after he was surrounded by a group of youths and struck with a missile in Ballyfermot. Gardaí say a number of patrol vehicles were also significantly damaged. Tara McManus is the Assistant General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association. She joins me on the line right now. Uh, Tara, can you tell us what exactly happened yesterday? Uh,
6: Good morning, Karen. Um, So there was an incident in Ballyfermot yesterday afternoon. Now it's followed... Um, a funeral, and there was a funeral of a, of a, a young man from the Farmet area. Um, but in the aftermath of that funeral, um, large groups of young males with motorbikes uh, began, I suppose, taking part in antisocial behaviour, a number of road traffic incidents, basically reckless endangerment in the Farmet area. Um, Gardi became aware that a member of the public, a lady who was actually out pushing a buggy, became injured by one of these motorbikes and they intervened at that stage um, to assist that woman. Um, and at that point, the mob, I suppose, of young men turned on the two members of Angadisi Akana and one of them received um, a serious injury to his head which required him to be hospitalised.
2: Um, is this part of a pattern or is it purely a once-off in Ballyfermit?
6: No, it's only a number of months ago that we had uh, a number of other colleagues that were seriously injured in Bally Farmers as well, and they had to be hospitalised and receive treatment for a number of days. Uh, so unfortunately, this type of behaviour is becoming indicative of what we see across uh, across the entire country. It's only a couple of weeks ago since we've seen another colleague of ours in Ballymun receive very serious injuries to his hand, um, having stopped um, person who was driving a vehicle. So it's the escalation of these assaults on our members, um, it's the seriousness and the violence that's attached to these assaults. So as an association we are very concerned about this. And Um, what... Sorry.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, what's the solution? Is it uh, more Gardaí or is it a case of giving more powers to Gardaí who are currently on the beat?
6: Um, I think you hit the nail with the first one there, Ken. It is definitely more Gardaí. We would see that uh, our members are at breaking point with regards to the issues that we have there. We have a um, a retention and we have a recruitment crisis within Angarda Siakana. Uh, the government have promised us up in 1,000 Gardaí for 2023. Um, yesterday we saw 136 uh, new Garda trainees enter the Garda College, but it's clear that if, if the numbers are going to remain at 136 every couple of weeks, we're not going to meet those targets. Um, in particular that area Ballyfermot, that's part of uh, DMR West and DMR West would see the highest retrition rates across the country. We have seen up on 50-60 members in DMR West resign in the last 12 months so it's quite clear that the garden members that we do have in this particular division, in this particular area, are fed up and um, they can no longer cope with, with the aggression that's shown towards them. They can never, no longer cope with the bureaucracy that's involved in actually doing the job. So certainly, um, we would be calling for a task force to be set up to examine all of these issues, to examine the violence that's shown towards the members, but also to look at why we cannot recruit new people into the Anggardish um, and why we cannot retain the members that we currently have
2: is it a, purely an issue of pay scales and money uh, which is feeding into low morale or has it got to do with the fact that the top brass and the Gardy uh, Drew Harris and his team they're not listening
6: To be honest, a lot of research would be done with regards to pay scales and money, And although it would be one of the features. It's normally not the main thing, and and what we're hearing back from our members are this is not to do with money, this is to do with the conditions, it's to do with the lack of resources, it's to do with the lack of manpower. I mean, any of that footage that you would have seen yesterday in Bally Farmers was maybe two to three guards at any of those incidents surrounded by tens and twenties of other young men so, I mean, you're looking at two to three guards dealing with very, very serious incidents. We are aware that the public order unit was called in to that incident, but they didn't actually appear in Ballyfermint until after seven o'clock last night. So the response was too slow. Um, we should have had a public order unit in there within two to three hours of that incident kicking off, or even quicker. But to have a, a public order incident... Or, Sorry, team, going in there at seven o'clock last night. The incident had almost died down at that stage when our members were there, where they were vulnerable, where they needed backup, where they needed support. They didn't have it. As that continues, we're going to see more and more of our members injured, and eventually, we are going to see one of our members receive fatal injuries if those type of incidents are not dealt with, and if we don't have the adequate supports and resources to deal with those.
2: Yeah, I think this happened in Tala as well some months back, where a guard, the patrol car, uh, came under attack. Um, have you taken your plight to the Minister for Justice and if so, uh, what is he currently saying on this matter?
6: We are due to meet with the Minister of Justice early next week and we will be impressing upon him the importance of examining this issue, of setting up this task force. We have been calling for a task force for a number of weeks and months uh, on this particular issue. Uh, We would say that the establishment of that task force needs to be done now as a matter of priority. We need to examine all the issues around why we cannot recruit people and why we cannot retain the people that we have. But we need to look at a, a number of issues there. But the first the first point of call definitely is, is that task force. But for the Minister to sit down and actually listen to us, we are representing over 11,000 members on the ground. And they are at breaking point with regards to their job, with regards to the resources, their equipment, their conditions. So he needs to listen to us in his association because it's it's us that are being told and us that can see firsthand what's actually happening out there in the street.
2: Is there a worrying shift happening in society where youngsters seem to have no discipline and uh, take on the guardie without thinking of the consequences? Are are you beginning to notice uh, a change here?
6: Absolutely, and I think a lot of that is to do with the intense sharing of those videos on social media. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think I was sent some of those videos about seven or eight times last night, and our concern is that the sharing of these videos is actually normalising these attacks. Uh, it would make us fearful that uh, there would be copycat attacks across the country. But I think as well, it's undermining the public confidence in policing because people can see the complete and utter disregard towards members of Vanguardia Khan the hostility that is shown towards us. I mean, you can only describe what happened there in Ballyfermot Farmer yesterday as an aggressive mob. Uh, Some members of the public are seeing this and we're hoping that the other side of that is that it can now see the vulnerability of our members and see how dangerous of an environment that our members are actually working in.
2: OK, well, look, Tara, we, we, we wish you well in trying to address that issue because at the end of the day, it's the Gardaí who protect us and uh, you deserve all the support you can get. That said, uh, Tara McManus, their Assistant General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association. Now, moving on, the number of uninsured drivers on Irish roads rose by 13% last year with 188,000 vehicles without cover and given insurance premiums are higher for all drivers As a result, there are calls for greater enforcement by Gardaí and the state. And Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley is suggesting that speed cameras should be used to catch anyone without insurance. Timmy, how would this work?
8: Well, I mean, first of all, I suppose in the same way uh, that the technology is already there to capture a a car that's above a speed limit, it also captures the number plate um, and the details Uh, are obviously contained in the back-end database. It would require, obviously, a change in the law or some additional uh, pieces of legislation uh, to give permission uh, to that system to capture the data for the reason of insurance rather than for just speeding. But I think people that I have spoken to in recent days who were quite taken aback uh, uh, by the level of uninsured uh, drivers on the road and cars that are are not uh, insured... They feel, uh, and I think it's hard to to disagree with them, that uh, it's really unfair that they are paying a higher insurance because a certain percentage of people, whether it's as high as those numbers suggest or not, is is not clear. Um, But it certainly is a matter of fairness. If people are paying their insurance, they don't expect to have to cover the liability of those who choose not to, or perhaps can't. But that's not the point. I mean, the, the law requires that, we ensure our, our, our vehicles when we're driving to protect others in the event of us being in an accident and uh, causing damage to other people's livelihoods or lives or property. Um, and uh, it seems to me, based on people that I've spoken to, that they want to see this enforced. And it's probably not possible to expect the Gardaí to mount a greater level uh, of uh, checks, which they had been doing up to a point and maybe continue to do, But I mean, when you've just the last piece that you dealt with, where you see that they're already challenged in terms of numbers and dealing with public order uh, issues, it's going to be a difficult situation to expect them to police something that can now be done in in an electronic way. The technology that Gardaí already have on board um, on their cars with this um, capacity to recognise a car, whether it's taxed or not, certainly can be extended to cover insurance. And it would seem to me to be a logical extension if the state is already contracting uh, a company to to capture those that are speeding. Um why not also capture those who who, who who don't have their cars insured?
2: OK, well, your party's in government. All you have to do is uh, pick up the phone to Mihal Martin and say, listen, Mihal, is there any chance you could put this on the Cabinet agenda in the next few weeks? I mean, is this uh, a runner, to, to use a phrase, or are there legal issues in relation to uh, using the information of a, a car in terms of its registration and chassis number, whatever goes with the, the process, uh, to making this workable?
8: But well, it's like anything. You, first of all, have to have uh, the will to do something. The political will is what it's referred to. And, of course, then it's necessary, it would be necessary um, to put the appropriate legislative framework in place because you can't just decide at a whim to uh, enforce something that doesn't have a legal standing or a legal framework. But, but yes, I, I have written to the Minister for Transport and the Minister for Justice making the suggestion that... Uh, we should use the already existing speed cameras which none of us really like particularly uh if we if if we receive a penalty out of it but it's it's acceptable um it certainly has reduced the necessity for guards to be on point position uh with speed guns they still do on some roads but the um there's no doubt that the speed cameras have greatly increased the capacity of the state uh to check people who are speeding. Um, as I said, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't welcomed at the incident. I don't, I, anyone I think who has got penalty points don't particularly like it, but it's acceptable. Um, and it has reduced the necessity for guards to be on, on point duty um, to address speeding to the extent that they would have had in the past.
2: Of course, at the end of the day, Timmy, um, the last time I looked at the figures, Ireland had the second highest insurance costs in Europe after the Netherlands, and then on top of the fact that we've had judges paying out ridiculous compensation payments to people who do nothing more than break their finger, uh, we have to pay a levy uh, for the Queen insurance debacle. Isn't the reality that uh, while it's uh, unfortunate that so many people are driving without insurance, uh, that the insurance costs are too high and that the government was late? to the table in trying to address insurance costs in this country
8: oh I'd agree with all of that Ken reality is that for far too long um, the insurance industry was not you know brought to heel there has been very significant changes in relation to the the book of quantum or the level of payouts that's having uh, a very significant impact we initially had the Piab that board where People could take their cases in a in a manner that didn't have to go to court. That didn't really work. It, it worked well for a while, but then we had a lot of cases still going to court because people felt they were they, they had a better chance of getting higher payouts. That has been addressed significantly. The industry for a long time were blaming it on the legal profession, um, and that hasn't really uh, that really hasn't stood the test of time. But the reality is that there isn't enough competition in the market. There isn't enough competition in the market because, quite frankly, international insurance companies. Don't believe that there's a level playing pitch here. So we've got to we've got to fight this on a number of levels. This isn't going to change dramatically the cost of insurance, but if if, if it's implemented and there are less people on the road uninsured, then for sure it will have a positive impact on driving down uh, the cost of premiums. And and that's what I'm suggesting. I don't believe it's the panacea for resolving all the issues in relation to the to the scale of of our. Um, Higher insurance than anywhere else in, in 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 Europe, but it can be a contributing factor. Okay, and, and I think we have to look at all measures. And and there was significant changes made by the government, as I said, in relation to the payouts, um, and that has been that has been welcomed across the board. I think uh, certainly from my experience, insurance uh, charges have come back a little bit in in the last number of years. They could come further for sure so it's a matter of continuing the efforts uh, in, in that regard
2: okay well timmy that's uh sounds like uh, a common sense idea so uh, that's your that's your mission in advance of the next election so we'll leave it there that's uh, fianna fall senator all the way from county clare timmy dooley okay more to come we'll take a break
0: Michael Reed on, on
2: LMFM OK, it's that time of the week where we update you on crime activity in the Loudmead area I'm joined on the line right now by Sergeant Mark Doran of Leytown Guard Station in East Meath. Mark I'm going to start with um, a story that's been featured on the news this morning uh, regarding a missing teenager from Mid-Loud. What can you tell us?
9: Yes, Ken. Good morning to you and your and your and your um colleagues there. Um I would like to ask the public to um to give their assistance in relation to the uh, whereabouts of a fourteen year old female by the name of Kaylee Hafford, who was missing from a Tallentstown area of County Loud since the nineteenth of february twenty twenty three. Kaylee is described as being approximately five foot four in height, of medium build with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was last seen in the Dunleary area of, on Sunday afternoon last. She was wearing uh, a white track suit, white converse runners, uh, a black padded coat with black fur trim. Um, anyone who has any information uh, on Kayleigh and her whereabouts are asked to contact as soon as possible to draw the guard station on 041-987-4200. That's 041-987-4200. The Garda Confidential Line at 1800 666 111 or Andy Garda Station and if anybody has any other information in relation to Kayleigh who might follow her on social media or or, or are aware of her being on social media where she might give information where she might be would you please give that information when when they contact the local Garda Station please
2: Okay, uh, let's move on to the theft of a car in Dundalk What can you tell us?
9: Yes, uh Ken. We just want to revisit this crime that occurred uh on the fourth of February between uh last, between Saturday, between the hours of ten PM at midnight, uh, in around the Moorland Row area of Dundalk. It was a black Nissan Duke two thousand fifteen ridge that was stolen outside the owners property and subsequently uh located, crashed at in the lo, in the Lois Lois Dove uh area. In Dundalk at around twenty three forty five, we are asking the public's assistance. In it, were they in those locations or in the Dundalk area in general around those times? They may have observed a black Nissan Duke that was uh, observed driving somewhat erratic, and may know the driver or have any description of the driver that was in that car at that time, please. And Dundalk are contactable at zero four two nine three double eight four hundred. That's zero four two nine three double eight four hundred.
2: Uh, something we touched on earlier on in the program here, you have advice for people considering going for walks in the Cooley Mountain areas.
9: Yeah, uh, our colleagues up in Carringford have, have asked us to to give out a reminder to the public, uh, both local and anyone who does visit the Cooley uh, air Mountain area, or anyone who has uh, who has uh, plans to visit the Cooley Mountain area, to be mindful that it is it is, is it is lambing season in that area in the very near future. And they are requesting that uh, people don't bring dogs during this time period because it's very stressful for the sheep, and obviously that has a knock-on effect, knock-on consequence for the farmers involved and for the whole um, sheep community, farming community up there in Cooley. So we'd ask uh, the, the public that if they are going to visit Cooley, the the Cooley Mountain area, the Cooley Peninsula, if you wouldn't mind just maybe leaving the, the dogs at home at this at this time,
2: please. Okay, we're going to move on to County Mead, and there seems to have been, a, if you like, a batch of uh, burglaries in the Screen, Garlow, Cross, uh, uh Kilmoon yeah. area. T- talk us through these.
9: Yeah, um between uh, between the 14th and 15th of February last year, in the Screen area of County Mead, uh, uh A licensed premises was broken into, and a quantity of alcohol was stolen. Um, The uh, the area is is known known in Tara there, and we would ask anyone who was in that area in around that period of time uh, that saw anything uh, saw anybody acting suspicious, or any vehicle that they thought was parked outside uh, in that location. The contact. So in on Ashburn at 0600 or the Garda confidential line at one 111 please.
2: And then down the road, there was uh, another burglary in uh, the Garlow Cross area.
9: Yeah, correct, Ken. Yeah, we had a spate of uh, of activity there on the um, uh, on the in around know, the, between the tenth and fifteenth of February. On 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 the tenth of February in the Garlow Cross area of Navajo County Mead at approximately two thirty a.m. Um, investigations uh, observed via CCTV, three mirrors gaining entry using what was described as heavy duty equipment, uh, getting into uh, a a service station. Now, quantity of stock was stolen. Um, a vehicle was used but parked offside, and Gardaí are asking anyone who was in, in that location around that time to contact us with details of the car parked up if they saw it, or near the garage, or details of the persons who were involved or saw anything suspicious. Taxi drivers or any members of the public heading to work early if they're if they're in that in that area at that time. I'm sorry, I saw anything please give us a ring at Navan Gara station or in the Garda Camp Financial Line, please.
2: And then on the fifteenth there was an attempted burglary at a service station at what's known as Curtis's Cross in Balrath, Navan.
9: Yes, yeah, that's correct, Ken. Yeah, Curtis Cross there beyond the N two there between Slane and Ashburn heading on heading on down into Dublin at approximately uh, 1:16 a.m. There was an attempted burglary at a service station there at Curtis Cross, where um, uh, damage was caused to try and get entry. And um, we we're asking anyone who was in that area, driving along that road, that might have dash cam footage or a taxi, a truck, or a car, and if they saw anything suspicious or anything to that effect, that they feel that wasn't it wasn't significant, but nonetheless, if they could ring Navin or Ashbourne garage Station or the guard camp footage a confidential line with any information and we'll chase that up
2: OK I don't know if the next one is connected but just up the road at Kilmoon Cross then there was another attempted burglary
9: Yeah correct Ken yeah you're right in that in further, further later in the morning around 6am which is a busy time at that area uh, the uh, service station at the Kilmoon Cross was uh, there was a, an, an attempted break in at that service station now it, 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 they caused an awful lot of damage to the to the to the service station trying to gain entry. Now entry wasn't gained, but we'd ask anyone who was in the Kilmoon Cross in around that period of time that saw a number of males uh, and a vehicle parked outside uh, attempting entry to the last premises to give us a shout. And, I'd, and 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 if anybody has any dash cam footage that they have operating on the car, okay, may not have seen anything, but maybe passed a car that was parked outside okay. or just outside the forecourt to give us a ring at Ashburn or the guard camp.
2: Okay, please. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. The clock has beaten us. That's uh, Sergeant Mark Doran of Leytown Garda Station. And we'll one of the name on the list is a 43-year-old man from Navan called Mark Duffy who was last seen in the Johnstown area on Monday, October the 3rd. And that just about wraps it up for this morning. I want to thank Chris Murray, who was on sound. Maggie McGuire, who produced. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning, just after the 9 o'clock news. Sinead Brazil is next. And until then, bye for now. <laughs>